You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. We just finished up just a three-week kind of short mini-series on parenting, Um, starting a new series today called Fall and Rising. Um, In the parenting series, we had this questions hotline that this week we're kind of sitting down and filming all. We've got about six or seven questions, and so that'll be coming. Um, one of the questions that was not asked, which I'm kind of surprised, actually, it's kind of a big discipleship question when you're you know, trying to raise your kids and launching them out well, and nobody asked it, uh, which is interesting. The question I'm thinking about is, when you're raising your children, what, how do you, which Star Wars episode should you see first? What's the order? What's the correct order as you are uh, discipling your children? Because, you know, there's lots of debate. Some, like George Lucas, would say, watch him in, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Of course, that's because he created those three horrible ones. So he's going to say that. But a purist like myself is going to say, and this is how we've raised our kids, you watch them in the order they came out. 77, 80, 83. Then you can go back and watch the junkie ones he came out with in the 90s, and then you come back to the new one. That's the proper biblical way to do it, in case you were wondering. Um, Now, can you jump in at any point and kind of just watch one Empire Strikes Back and do that? Yes, you can. And you can kind of understand what's going on. But it's so much better if you start in the beginning, because it makes so much more sense that you watch the prequel and then the sequel. Right? That, that's, that's how it works. That's true for any story, right? You don't jump in and watch Toy Story 2 until you've watched Toy Story 1 because you got to know what Buzz and Woody and how they didn't like each other, but then they came to be friends. And, and so you do that, right? That's how it works. Or you don't go and watch The Two Towers or Return of the King unless you watch The Fellowship of the Ring because you can figure out all this stuff. You don't go watch Godfather Part 2 until you've seen Godfather part one, because then you don't know how Michael Corleone became the Don and how he was this, but now he's that, and now he's this mean guy. And then you don't watch the third one because it's awful. Um, but, but you go in order because it makes more sense. You watch the prequel before the sequel. And, and I say all that because we as a church did this wrong. Two years ago, we studied a sequel without studying the prequel. So this is our repenting and coming back to you. We looked at the sequel, if you remember, which covered about 30 AD. It starts with Jesus ascending into heaven, and it's the next 30 years of the church, how he has sent them out into the world to be his witnesses. But that was part two of a two-part story. And so what we're going to go back in is for the next couple months, we're going to look at the prequel. We're going to look what happened first. 
we are going to study the Gospel of Luke. All right, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Luke. If you don't, we'll have it up on the slides. Um, we typically work through books of the Bible. This is a unique book, and that is a two-part book. Luke is part one of the Luke-Acts story. Um, and if you want to know what Acts is about, all of our sermons are up on the web. You can go listen to that. We, we did that two years ago. We called it Witnesses. But as we enter into the Advent season, I, I can't think of a more fitting way than studying one of the only, well, there's only two Gospels that actually cover the birth of Christ. Luke is one of them. It's just a fitting way to begin. And, and when we talk about Advent, for those of you from a higher church you know, background, you, you get it a little bit. Those are the, the kind of not like me. It's kind of new. But what we do is we just take the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, and every week we, we, we kind of work through a theme. And we remember the first Advent or coming of Christ in preparation for the Next Advent. That's what Advent's about. It's not just about having cute stories with magi and shepherds and all these things. It's about remembering the first coming and expectation of the second. And so this week, the first week of Advent, you typically talk about the theme is hope. And we're going to get to that as we crack this book and we look at the first couple verses of why Luke wrote it and who he's writing to and what's going on there. But let me just give you some background because anytime you study a book, I know it's a little bit tedious and it's a little bit facts and some of you are like, don't tell me any facts because I forget them. That's fine. But it's helpful to understand what's going on because we're going to be here for a couple months. So for you to understand what the point and who wrote it and all these things, it's helpful. So we have four gospels in the New Testament, right? You're new to the Bible. A gospel just means good news. And so it's just the stories of, of, of who Jesus is and what he's done. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All right, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are known as the synoptic gospels. It's a fancy word that just means they're very similar. All right, so if you read them, they're similar in the way they tell the story. They have very similar, you know, kind of accounts of what's going on. There's a little bit of like, this guy talks about this and this guy talks about this. And, but they're, they're very similar, okay? Compare it to, you could say it's kind of modern day illustration. It's kind of like the news. You got ABC, CBS, NBC. You watch the six o'clock news, everyone's pretty much talking about the same thing. They might have it in a little bit of different order and there might be a little different focus, but it's all about the same thing. That's the Synoptic Gospels. Each one's got a different audience. Matthew's written to a Jewish audience. Mark is written to the common man. Each one has a different point in what they're trying to, to, to develop. So Matthew is supposed to show the Jews that Jesus was the promised Messiah and Mark is just kind of show them he's a, he's a suffering servant. So there's a different kind of angle all about the same story. But then you have the Gospel of John, which is kind of like PBS, right? It's kind of out there on its own. No one really watches it except for like Masterpiece Theater and Downton Abbey and stuff, right? But it's kind of, it does its own thing. 90% of, of John's material is unique. It's not written anywhere else. So he's kind of his own deal out there, and he's got his own purpose. His is the evangelistic gospel. It's to show people who Jesus was so that they would come to faith in him. Um, and so it's, it's just a little bit different. But we're interested in one of the synoptics, the gospel called Luke, which is a two-part story, which we've talked about already. And it starts with kind of prior to Jesus' birth, and the story works all the way through his life, and his rejection by Israel, and his resurrection picks up when he goes back into heaven in the book of Acts, and then finishes with Paul in Rome taking basically the message that started 30 years, 60 years earlier from a little town of Bethlehem all the way to Rome and the gospel spreading. And that's kind of the big picture story. 
So let me give you just a couple facts for you facts people. Some of you are like, I'm not facts people, so you can just kind of chill for a few moments. But here's for the facts people. Here's for like the, the knowledge folks that just love this kind of stuff. Luke is the longest gospel, 1,151 verses, right? There'll be a quiz on this next week. You can't get in church with the answer this, all right? Uh, but there's 1,151 verses. Almost half of those, 568 of them, are actually Jesus speaking. So really, 50% of the longest gospel is actually the words of Christ. So you want to know about what Jesus said and what he thought and all these things? This is your gospel. Okay, more than any other, this, this is the words and the thoughts and the heart of Christ. 50% of the material found in this gospel is unique only to this gospel. Okay, so there's a, it's very detailed of all the miracles that Jesus did. Okay, in fact, there's so many miracles Jesus did, we, we can't even count them. In fact, the Gospel of John says, I can't even write all the stuff Jesus did. If I did, it would fill the world. But out of the 35 miracles that are actually given in the Gospels, only 35, 20 of them are in Luke. All right? And seven of them are unique only to this Gospel. So it's very thorough when it comes to the miracles. When it comes to the parables, Jesus told about 50 parables throughout all the gospels. 35 of them are found in Luke and 19 of them are unique to this gospel, right? And so, and, and other than that, we have like 30 events that are of Jesus's life that are found nowhere else except for this gospel. So it's very thorough, the most thorough of all, most detailed of all of the four gospels. And it's got something for everybody. And this is the gospel written to a Gentile audience. It's got something for everybody. You're a kid? All right, it's got something for you. It is the only gospel that talks about Jesus, even if it only gives one snapshot of Jesus as a, a young man. What's it like being God growing up in Nazareth? All right, it's, it's the only time that mentioned. It's, the, it's one of the only two gospels that actually mentions his birth at all. all. right, so if you're a kid, this is for you. If you're a woman, this, this gospel elevates and exalts women more than any of the others. There's 13 women that are only found in this gospel that are not mentioned everywhere else that help Jesus with his ministry, that support him, that are like sisters to him that he speaks well of. Jesus elevates women to their proper place in this gospel more than any other. And he deals kindly with them and he is gracious with them. If you're a short person, right, like me, this is your gospel, right? Because you got a guy in this gospel that's short that proves that God loves short people, right? In this gospel. If you're a charismatic, you're a little bit, you know, hands up, hands up, roller coaster guy in church, this is your gospel. This gospel speaks more of the Holy Spirit and mentions the work of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit more than any of the other three. If you are artsy, you're kind of that musical, poetic, multiple tattoos, like weird coffee shops and nasty food downtown person, right? <laughs> This gospel is for you because this has more poetry, more songs than any of the other gospel. This is the artsy gospel. This is what I called earlier the SCAD gospel, all right? So if you're a SCAD student, this is your gospel. If you are poor, this gospel talks more about the poor, Jesus' heart for the poor, that Jesus was poor than the others. If you are well-educated, you got letters in front of your, your name, you got letters after your name. This is your gospel because it's written by a guy who is clearly well-educated, as we'll talk about, and he is a doctor, okay? So it's, a, it's very intelligent. It's for the intelligent mind. If you're the emotional kind of person, you're kind of the, uh, you cry because Georgia lost again yesterday, and that's sad, you know? Or maybe you're a Carolina fan, or maybe you're an Auburn fan, or whatever. You know, there's a bunch of criers in the room, right? This is your gospel because it speaks more of the emotion 
of, of people. He goes, Mary treasured these things and she was this. And he goes into how people felt and what they were thinking more than the other. Or maybe you're here and you are a skeptic. You don't know if you believe this whole Jesus thing. Born in a manger, born of a virgin, sinless, died on a cross. This gospel is written for you. Because it is it's written from the, the perspective of, of an investigative reporter who goes and gets on the ground and finds proof and evidence whether or not these things are actually true, right? And it's written very straightforward and very detailed in that way. So if you're a skeptic, great. You are welcome here. This is your gospel. It's got something for everybody. It is the greatest story about the greatest man who ever walked on the face of the earth, Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah. And so we're going to spend next couple months working through it like we do. Um, and, and what I want you to do is I want you to be familiar with it. I don't want it to go in one ear out the other. We have never preached the gospel. Of, we planted this church about almost 10 years ago, March. I've never had the opportunity to preach the gospel. This is the first time I've ever preached one of the four gospels. And I don't want to wait you to waste it because I don't know when next time God's going to allow me to do one. So we've, we've given bookmarks that are out in the foyer here on the little thing that have basically where we're going to be the next couple weeks. I think we got through like January 1st on there. So you will know what we will be preaching every Sunday till then. And then when we get close to the other one, we'll provide new ones so that you can read ahead. Spend 20, 30 minutes, a couple times a week just reading through the passage so that when you come in, you're familiar with it already. And maybe read through the book a couple times. It'll take you about an hour and 15, hour and 20 minutes. It's a long book. But I promise you, you'll know where we're going better and you'll start seeing this story. If you're really, really up for a challenge, read Luke and then read Acts together, which is the way it's supposed to be. It's kind of like on a Saturday watching Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back. It's delightful. That's what you're supposed to do. It's, that's, that's a Luke and Acts. And so I encourage you to do that at some point in the next month and just to be get, getting ready, okay? Let me tell you a little bit about what we know about Luke, just so you kind of understand the man. Um, he actually never says in the book, I, Luke, write this book. All right, here's my Facebook page. Tells me all about you, all about me. You know, you can Instagram me, you can Twitter me. You know, he doesn't have any of that in here. And, but we know that Luke is the author for two reasons. Number one, all the church fathers, which are those who came after the apostles, they all say Luke wrote it. So we listen to them. But number two, and more convincingly, whoever wrote Luke is also the author of Acts. Why do we know that? Well, number one, the Greek is almost identical, that the way he lays everything out is almost identical, and they're both written to the same dude, a guy named Theo, all right? Not Huxtable, his name's Theophilus. We'll talk about him in a few minutes. So, and we know that Luke wrote the book of Acts because of the, what we called the we passages when we looked at that, where there's portions of the book of Acts where the writer says, we did this, and we did this, and we did this, and we went here, and me and Paul did this. And so when you narrow down who the we was, the we ended up being Luke and Paul. And so if Luke wrote Acts, Luke wrote Luke, all right, just by narrowing it down. And so Luke is the author. And what we know about him from the scripture is very limited. We have a couple passages, three where he's mentioned. At the end of Philemon, Philemon is just this little book that Paul wrote from his first imprisonment. And at the end, he writes to Philemon, he says, Luke says hi. You're like, oh, great. Doesn't help anything, all right? Luke says hi. In 2 Timothy, however, which is Paul's second imprisonment, right before he is, cruci- he is, he is uh, beheaded in Rome, he writes a book to his, his protege, Timothy, and he tells Timothy, the end is near, I'm going to die, I need you to come soon. I want you to bring my cloak because I'm cold. I want you to bring my books because I want to do something while I'm sitting in jail waiting. 
And he says this, everyone has abandoned me. Everyone's left. All my friends are gone. Luke alone is with me. Go get Mark and bring him. He's useful. At the end of his life, everyone had abandoned him. Everyone had quit. Everyone had run away. And he says, but Luke, the one who was there in the first imprisonment, the one who was there in the second imprisonment, and what we find out is he, he stayed till he was martyred. He's a faithful, loyal friend to the end. So we get that about him. And then in Colossians 4, again, written the same time Philemon was written, actually, first imprisonment. And this is a critical little verse because it tells us who Luke was. It says, Luke, the beloved physician greets you. The only reason we even know that Luke was a doctor was from this little verse, right? So every, that's why every verse is important, right? Every verse is inspired. Even the little ending where it seems like he's just kind of wasting space, he, he lets us know this is a doctor. And it makes sense after you hear that and you read it because this, his Greek, y'all, I'm not a Greek scholar. I took seven semesters in seminary of Greek, all right? And I still am lousy. But I don't study Luke or Acts in Greek because it is so hard because he is so smart. He is like Shakespeare of Greek. I study Mark. Mark was a PE teacher, okay? And so Mark writes on like third grade Greek level. I can read it. John, like fifth grade. Nobody reads Luke, Acts, or Hebrews because those guys are like Harvard educated, right? And so it, when you hear Luke the physician, what you realize, it makes a ton of sense because Acts and Luke are very intelligent, eloquent, well-written Greek. Doesn't come across in English that way, but if you, if you study you know, ancient languages that no one speaks anymore, you know, that, that, that's the, it's very evident. And I think that's huge for us as a church. Because here you got this well-educated, smart guy. And that, that kind of flies in the face of what people think about Christianity, right? If you're a Christian, you got to check your brain at the door. You just got a blind kind of, you know, you don't need to really evaluate things. And you just need to be dumb is what they're saying. Or there's this kind of mentality in the church, especially with kind of younger generation. I just want to serve Jesus. So I'm going to drop out of school and I'm just going to go serve Jesus. And that sounds super spiritual and super cool. And maybe God calls you to do that. But what I think what Luke would say is, you want to serve Jesus? Great. Finish school and then let him use your gifts and talents and where he takes you to serve. Because that's what he did. He's a doctor. It's not like, yeah, I'm dropping out of med school because I want to go serve Jesus. No, I'm going to get my med school finished and I'm going to use this, what God has created me to do, and I'm going to use it and I'm going to point people to the Savior. And that's exactly what he does. So let me encourage you. Don't just be like all super spirit. Oh, I'm just going to drop out of school. I'm in sixth grade. I'm going to go serve Jesus. Okay, just finish, right? Get something done and, and get educated so that God can use these things and, and take you where he wants you to go. There's one other thing that kind of informs us a little bit about who Luke is. And it's not found in the scripture. It's actually found in a second century manuscript, which was a commentary on the book of Luke. So we're not 100% sure if it's, you know, it's not scripture, so we're not putting it on par. But it is interesting. It says this about Luke. We have no reason to doubt it, but we, we can't say it's, it's scripture. It says Luke was born in Antioch. Okay, he's probably a Gentile. All right, Antioch is a, is a Gentile city up north. Um, he, he was, by profession, he was a physician. Okay, we knew that. He had become a disciple of the Apostle Paul and later followed Paul until his martyrdom. So he probably has a practice set up in Antioch. Paul comes to town, wins this guy to Jesus. He doesn't grow up in the church. He didn't grow up in Sunday school with a flanograph and, you know, Bible stories. He grew up in a pagan home. He's, he's just kind of living his life and he gets saved later in life. He was not an eyewitness to the life of Jesus. 
Right? He, he, he wasn't there when, when Jesus was doing all these things. He is finding out from those who were there. I think that's important. It says he is unmarried and without children. Very interesting that he foregoes the gift of marriage and family so he can devote his life fully. I think, I, and I bet, if you think about it, Luke was probably an eligible bachelor. Uh, he's got money. He's got, you know, unless he's like mega ugly dude, every time he goes with Paul to all these churches and visits, hey, we're in Ephesus. I bet out of the way, here's Luke. Luke's coming to town. Luke's a doctor, honey. You need to go see Luke. You know, he's he's an eligible bachelor, right? And I'm sure everyone was trying to marry off Luke all the time. Oh, you want to meet so-and-so? She's so sweet. She's single. I mean, there's probably a lot of that. But here's Luke and he spends his life. He says, you know what? It's not that... It's not that marriage is not good, but he, he devotes his life fully to being single. He's got the gift of singleness. That's huge. Because in our church, y'all, we, we look at people like, oh, you're 33 and you're not married? What's wrong with you? I'll tell you what's wrong. It's the, most of the time, it's the guys, but that's another story. I'll, I'll deal with them in another time. But, um, but the reality is sometimes... God calls people to singleness, and it's not a secondary lifestyle, and it's not something that you should be like, oh, something must be broken there. No. If Luke is married, he can't be there with Paul to the end. If he's got kids he's got to take care of, how is he supposed to stay with Paul through shipwrecks and all these things? This is the life God's called him to, and it's good. So don't go, you know, trying to marry off everybody who's single, right? Maybe God wants them to get married. Maybe he doesn't. Don't go looking down on people because they're this and that. Hey, each person got his called to something. And so let them, let God kind of lead them in that, not you. All right. It does say he was filled with the Holy Spirit, which is interesting. He was a great guy. Everyone wanted to be around him. He was love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Um, and he was 84 when he died. All right. Okay. Whether true or not, but I have no reason to deny it. If he's 84 back then, you know what that tells me? He was a good doctor. Right? Because the average lifespan wasn't that much. So he's probably not stopping at Mickey D's every time they hit a port. He's probably doing a little P90X on the boat, right? He's taking care of himself. Some of y'all, that's an application for you after Thanksgiving. Go for a walk. Um, but you have this good guy. He's humble. He's willing to live in the, in the kind of, not in the spotlight, but let Paul have the spotlight. He's intelligent. He's gifted. And all he does is just lives his life in a way that he points people to the Savior. Guess what? 2,000 years later, he's still pointing people to the Savior. And he'd been in heaven for 1,980 years, right? That's, that's a great life right there. That's Luke. That is our author, right? Someone who is, is a Gentile, didn't grow up in church, but yet he comes to faith later. That's some of y'all's story. Let's, let's crack, let me crack this, the first four verses of this book, just give you an idea of where we're going, because in this first four verses, we're going to see why he's writing, who he's writing to, and really, it points us to that first theme of Advent, uh, of hope. Let me read the text, and then we'll jump in real quick. He says this, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So he starts off, he says, inasmuch, and you can translate that since. Since many have written, since many have been writing about these things, this book is probably written around 60, 62 A.D., there is at least one gospel already been written. 
Whether it was Matthew or Mark, we're not sure. Theologians and, and scholars debate. I don't really care. Okay, it doesn't really matter to me. But somebody has written a gospel at some point, so he, he knows about it, but other people are writing about what's going on. And he says, our sources, he tells you where his source is. It's not just hearsay. He says, we've been, we've been, these things have been passed to us from those who were there. From the beginning, who were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. So when, you, when you're getting Luke's info, you're getting it right from the horse's mouth. You're getting it from those who saw it, who, who were there, who were experienced. And so he says, since, since everyone else is doing it, and since these guys have been passing the info to me, it seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write you an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So who's Theophilus? Because that's who this book is directed to, and the book of Acts. His name means loved by God or lover of God. So some have said, well, it's just a generic term for all Christians. But I disagree. I think he was an actual guy. Two reasons. Number one, he says to you, and that you is singular, not y'all. It's to you, Theophilus. And number two, he calls him most excellent Theophilus. The term most excellent is used elsewhere in Luke's writings. And it, it's a specific person, a specific guy. Most excellent Felix, he says, and most excellent Festus, he says. So there's no reason to doubt or deny that this is a real dude living somewhere in that time who had some connection to Luke. What do we know about him? Not much, except that he was probably wealthy. He's a high Roman ranking official. He's got some, some clout. He's got some power. He's got enough money to subsidize a book of the Bible. I mean, most people think that he's the one that's supporting Luke so that he can do all this investigating. And paper was not cheap. There was no staples. You couldn't just go down and get it. All right. So he's providing this so Luke can go and, and do all these, run off and do all this adventure. Um, and he could have been a Roman lawyer, some suggested. He could have been some businessman in Antioch. The bottom line is he is a Christian. Verse 4, it says, I'm writing you concerning the things you have been taught. And he's a Christian that needs some encouragement. And the reason Luke is writing him is he says, I, look at he says, I'm writing to you that you might have certainty concerning the things, that you can be sure, that you can know without a shadow of a doubt that these things are true. He's writing to encourage him. He's writing to give him hope. Because Theophilus has a lot to risk in following Jesus. If he's a high-ranking official in the Roman Empire, if he's some guy that's kind of over a bunch of people, he has a ton to risk if he declares himself a follower of a Jewish Messiah who Rome crucified. Because his allegiance is supposed to be to Caesar. And if his allegiance is now to a Jewish carpenter, he's going to lose everything. And so he's probably has, he's questioning some things and has some doubts. Is this really true? Did he really walk on water? I mean, really? Did he really yell at Nature and nature listened. Did he really heal a blind dude? I mean, did he really take a lunchable and feed a stadium full of people? Did he really die and come back to life? And, and if he did, where do I fit? Because I'm a Gentile. And this is a very Jewish deal early on. Remember, the Jews and the Gentiles still are not real fans of each other. And so he said, well, I'm, just, I'm just a Roman. I'm a, I'm a Greek how do I fit into this very Jewish deal going on? And so Luke is writing to him saying, I want to give you certainty about this. I want you to know without a shadow of a doubt so that you can have hope that this is true. That's why he's writing. 
And to, to me, if I think about that, how awesome is it that most of the, the author that wrote the most material in the New Testament, Paul wrote the most books, but who wrote the most verses? Luke. The book of Luke and Acts make up 28% of the New Testament. Okay, it's the most material by one author. That the most material by one author is written to how many people? One. Isn't that amazing that, that a quarter of the New Testament is written for one dude and you don't even know who he is? And what that shows me about our God is, does God love the nations? Yep. Does God love the cities? Yep. Does God love the world? Yep. But does God care about one guy that you don't even know who he is and about his faith and about his hope and about his certainty? Yes, he does. So much so that a quarter of the New Testament is written to one dude, one guy. Does God care about your mess? Does God well aware of your lack of faith and your doubting? Is it wrong to doubt? There's a lot of good people in the Bible that had doubts, by the way. Did David have doubts? Did Moses have doubts? Did John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah and the cousin of Jesus, have doubts? And God cares enough about you that he would write this book so that you may know, hey, you can have certainty you can have certainty, you can have hope. And he puts the right guy, I mean, he puts the OCD guy, a guy whose life is about precision and accuracy. And he puts him in charge. I mean, in Luke, if you met him, he's a little OCD. Let's be honest, he's a little anal, but he's the right guy to write this gospel because the truth and accuracy matters. Look again at verse three. What does he say? He says, I, I've been following these things closely. It's a Greek word that means accurately. I've been looking carefully for some time. Why? So that I could write you an orderly account so that I could be detailed and I, I could tell you exactly what happened. He's not just listening to, yeah, I heard a story about this and I heard about, he's not just into myths. He is into facts. And so here's a guy, he goes to the eyewitnesses. He goes to them and asks some questions. So he's gonna go to Peter. He's gonna ask Peter, Peter, all right, tell me what happened on the mountain. Well, there we were. And we fell asleep. Me and James and John were asleep. You fell asleep with Jesus right there and Moses and Elijah? Yeah, we fell asleep. Okay, good. So what happened after that? Well, we woke up. And we said, it was so cool because it was like Moses and Elijah. And so we said, let's build tents and live here forever. And then this cloud came down and it freaked us out. And then this voice said, listen to my son. Don't listen to this. Listen to this. He is my beloved son. It was amazing. And then Jesus told us, don't tell anybody about it. So I shouldn't be really telling you, but I'm telling you anyway, right? All right. And then he goes to James and Jude and Joseph, the brothers of Jesus. It's like, okay, they said that Jesus was sinless. All right, you grew up with him. Be honest. Did, you ever see, did he ever smack your sister when you weren't looking? No, man. And we, honestly, we couldn't stand that kid because he was so perfect. We always got in trouble and he was always like angel boy. All right. So, so you never saw him do anything. He always had a clean room, always had a clean room. Always listen to mom, always listen to mom. Always yes, ma'am, yes, sir. Never did anything wrong. Drove us nuts. He goes to Mary. All right, Mary, here you were. Teenager, prego, angel shows up. How'd you feel? What, what happened? Well, angel shows up. I was freaked out a little bit. He said I was gonna have a baby. After I calmed down, I wrote a song. 
It's called Magnificent. You might have heard of it. It was a great song. First century bestseller, right? And then, um, you know, I went and I saw my cousin and then she, the baby did like a flip in her tummy. It was unbelievable, right? Well, you, uh, tell us what it was like to, to raise the Messiah. <laughs> well, I can tell you one time, it was embarrassing, but we left him in Jerusalem for three days. We didn't even know he was lost. He's off preaching in the temple. We're all riding camels back to Nazareth. I mean, and we freaked out and we ran back and there he was in the temple teaching the rabbis. Unbelievable, right? Made us, made us wonder who in the world are we raising, right? Went to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, you got a little bit of a Napoleonic complex. Is that true? Yes, it's true. All right. Um, tell us about when you met the Messiah. Well, I, I, you know, I didn't know if he would want to be with me because all the Jews hate me because I'm a tax collector. So what I did is I climbed up in this tree. I can actually show you the tree. The tree's still there. Uh, let me show you it. It's, it's a sycamore tree. It's down right there. Down, down. You're right. It's a sycamore tree. I'm going to write that down. That, that's important. Details. Probably went to the lady who for 12 years, all the doctors couldn't heal her. That's got to interest Luke, right? As a doctor, he's thinking I could have healed her. I bet I could have done it. Let me see your chart. Where's her chart? You got your chart still? But you see, so ma'am, you're telling me that you spent all your money on doctors. Yes. And nobody could help you. Nobody could help me. So what'd you do? Well, I heard Jesus come by. So I got on the ground and I crawled and I just kind of reached out and grabbed his jacket and it was like, boom, healed. You're saying you just touched his jacket and it healed you? Absolutely. And all those doctors, they couldn't do nothing. Nothing. Wow. Probably talked to somebody that got fed by by Jesus. Maybe, maybe he was a kind of little, you know, kind of little trickster just to make sure they're telling the truth. So what you're telling me is Jesus had five fish, two loaves, and there was 13 baskets left over, right? Is that what you're telling me? No, 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 no. It was 12 baskets. I was there. Ah, okay. You got me, right? He, he, he cares about those who were there. He cares about the details. And here's why that's important, y'all. And I'm, I'm trying to set this thing up, and I know it's a little bit factual, but this is important. The details matter. The truth matters. Because if there is no truth, there is no certainty. You need to understand that. Our certainty is connected to the truth. Theophilus' certainty were connected to the truth, right? Because there is no hope there is no certainty if there's no truth. It's just the way it is. Because if you're not, how do you know? When we, when we did First Thessalonians, we define hope like this. That hope is the confident expectation of something better. Confident expectation of something better. Say that with me, because some of you are falling out. You're going, you're going, you're like, oh. All right, hope is the confident expectation of something better. Again, hope is the confident expectation of something better. Well, if you don't have confidence in it, how do you know it's going to get better? I mean, if it's not true, then there's no real hope, is there? That's the point. I mean, if you cannot answer the questions of why I am here and what is the purpose of life and what happens after this, if you don't know the answers to those questions, there's not a lot of hope, is there? It's kind of aimless. And what Luke does is he sets out to tell the story of who Jesus is, what he has done. He starts answering those questions so that Theophilus and those like us after would have hope. And so my goal, besides you just knowing the words of Jesus and knowing the thoughts of Jesus more than ever and over the next several months drawing near to him, is that you would have certainty 
and the truth of what Jesus did and who he is and what he's calling us to. That you would know that this is true. Because where else are you going to go when life stinks? I mean, really. Because life is sometimes up. And Georgia Tech fans today, life's up. All right? Clemson fans, woo! Everyone's excited. That. But what happens when tragedy happens? When the loss of a job, when the loss of a loved one, when sickness, whatever. Where are you going to go? Your little mini story, if you don't have, if it doesn't fit somewhere in the big narrative of what God's doing, then it's just aimless. There's no hope. If you don't have the confident expectation that this is not as good as it gets, there's something better, what's the point? And so your hope is linked to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. And this is written to a group of people. They don't know it yet. In two to three years, it is going to be very difficult to be a Christian because Nero is going to start killing people and burning people and wiping them out. And they better be doggone sure that Jesus is who he said he is and that he did what he said he's done. Because otherwise, they're going to go to get crucified upside down and they're going to get lit on fire so they can light his gardens and they're going to get beheaded for nothing unless they know it is true. And so he is writing to give them certainty and confidence. And that's important. And here's why. And this is kind of aimed at the younger people a little bit more, but also for the older. What has crept into the church... And the last, it's not new, it's been around since Paul's day, but is this, this idea that you can have spirituality without truth, right? That, you know, and I got this college professor and he told me that, you know, the, the apostles, they just made stuff up about Jesus and then we don't really know what he really said and, and, and they didn't really care about accuracy back then. They just kind of made up stuff and, and all this stuff. And, and there's this idea, we could just take the spiritual principle, but we don't really need the facts because that's not really accurate. That's not really what happened. I mean, you know, miracles, come on, that didn't really happen. That's just them trying to establish. And let me just say, the whole idea of miracles, is that hard to get your arms around? Yes, but that's because it's miraculous and it was not the norm, just like it's not the norm for us, it wasn't the norm for them. They weren't just walking around like Jedi, like, you know, here's some food, you want a Lunchable? You know, and oh, you're blind, you know. There wasn't Yoda walking around Jerusalem. Miracles are miraculous because they're not normative, right? And that's why when an angel shows up, people aren't like, hey, where you been, Gabe? I've been waiting for you. What do they do? They freak out. It's not normal. That's when Jesus cast out a demon. People are like so terrified. They're like, leave. We don't want you here. That's why when he says to these people, oh, she's not really dead. She's just sleeping. They start mocking him. Right? It's not normal. That's why it's miraculous. But just because it's miraculous does not mean it's not true. Because Luke has gone to the source and he's talked to these people. And he said, this is what happened. I talked to those people who were there. Right? And it's it's. The idea of I'll take the spiritual, but I won't take the facts, that's just ludicrous. Because what you're saying is I get, to I get to define what the facts are because I'm so smart because I went to school and I'm in the 21st century and I'm so much smarter than Luke who was intelligent and who was a doctor and who spent years and years investigating and going and seeing all this that happened. It's a slap in the face. So let's be careful not to avoid this kind of this kind of, you know, spiritual, new agey Christianity, but with my little spin on it, right? This, this postmodern spiritualism. Your hope, your certainty are linked to the fact that this all happened. And if it didn't, then you have no hope. Bottom line. I mean, we're putting all our eggs in that basket. These are not just stories that Luke told to try to make you to be good, 
Be good. Be like the good Samaritan. Be good. Be like the shepherd who went after the sheep. Be good. That's not what they are. They are here so that you will know they are true, so you can have some steel in your spine and, and a robust faith in the historical fact that these things happen. Your faith, your hope, is rooted in historical fact of who Jesus was and, and what he did, period. And he fulfilled everything that the Old Testament prophets said. And so when we talk about hope, we lit the prophecy candle this morning. First candle in the Advent wreath is the prophecy candle. And we have all these prophecies that, that were foretold. We read one of them earlier, written 700 years before Bethlehem, that this is what Messiah would do. And they are so precise and they are so accurate, all so that you would be able to easily identify the Messiah, that he would be the seed of a woman, that he would be of Abraham's people, that he would be of Jacob's people, that he would be of the tribe of Judah, that he would be from the line of David, that he would be born in Bethlehem of a virgin, that he would come out of Egypt at some point, that he would live in Nazareth, that there would be a forerunner who would be accompanying him, that there would be a star that would announce his birth, that there would be great sorrow when he was born because of what someone did in Samaria, i.e. Herod killing the babies. Guess what? It all happened just like it said. And then it said he would be a prophet and that he would heal people, that he would teach in parables, that he would be abandoned by his friends, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that he would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey that had never been written, that he would be hung on a tree, that he would be pierced, that he would be spat on and beaten, that none of his bones would be broken like the Passover lamb, that his clothes would be cast lots for, that he would be buried in the grave of a rich man, that he would be resurrected. It all happened just like it said right? Because it's true. And so everything else he said is true. I have come light, give life and life abundant. I'll never leave you, forsake you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Take my yoke upon you. All these things. We can trust them because they are true. They're true, right? And if they're not, then, then you're wasting your time. If, if one thing is not true, if one miracle is not real, if one word of Jesus is not true, then he is a liar and he is not God. And if he's not God, he is not your savior. If he's not your savior, you are lost. It, your certainty is linked to the truth of this. Your hope is linked to the historical fact of what he says. And so you have two options in this series. Two options. And this is this really linked to why we named this Fallen Rising. Fallen Rising is kind of cool. It sounds kind of like the next Star Wars movie. I wish it was, but it's not. I stole it from the Gospel of Luke. I stole it from a man named Simeon, right? And I think it's the key verse of the book where he's prophesying over the eight-day-old baby Jesus. And he says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising. There it is, of many in Israel. This is, this is basically Jesus' life, right? See, there's going to be people who oppose him. There's going to be people who resist him. The Pharisees, Herod, Rome, even the people of Israel. And those people who resist him, there will be a fall. In fact, he says in Luke 19 that the cornerstone will crush them. But there also will be a rising. The lowly, the humble, 
as many as received him, those are going to be exalted. And so the gospel really is about your response to this person. Are you going to humble yourself and receive what he says? Or are you going to resist him and oppose? Because you will either fall or be exalted. And so our goal for the church is that you, when, you, when, you, when, when Jesus kind of comes up against you a little bit and says, hey, this is where you need to be going, that you would humble yourself, that you'd be lowly and say, he's God, I'm going to follow him. And that you wouldn't be like the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees and Pontius Pilate who resist because they end up being humbled. And so we want to be like Mary who humbles herself and is exalted. And that's the point of the book. Will there be a fall or will there be a rising? Right? Because the only way for there to be true hope is if there is a, is an exaltation is that you'll humble yourself and you'll respond to this one this Jesus of Nazareth. So that's where we're going um, over the next couple months. And it's hopefully going to be an exciting journey for us as we study the life, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, our Messiah, our Savior. Let me pray, and we will just worship together for a few minutes in response to the hope that we have in Christ. Father, I pray for this series. I pray for your people, that there will be a just a lowliness, Lord, and a humility that we will put ourselves under the words and person of Christ, that we will respond to what he has said for you. You, Lord Jesus, are our God. You are our Savior. You are our Lord. I pray for the one in this room that's a skeptic that over the next few months, they would just be drawn to yourself, Lord. I pray for those who are running and who are resisting that they would be humbled so that they could be exalted, Lord. Whatever is appropriate for each person. But I pray that we would grasp and have certainty that you and what you have said and what you have done are true. It's not myth. It's not fake. It's not made up. It is truth. You are truth. And we come and as your people, we acknowledge it and we sing about it and we worship you for it. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys stand as we sing. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Just the sweetest frame, but we trust in Jesus' name.
flawless to stand before the throne. Flawless to stand before the throne. Christ alone, cornerstone, remain strong and
We believe in Christ the Son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. We believe in the resurrection that we will rise again. For we believe in the name of Jesus. For we believe in the name of Jesus. Oh, come, let us Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. Yeah.